You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Our current serial is Musketeer Space. Chapter 53 The Many Deaths of Milord. The first time that he died, he was not Milord de Winter, nor was he Auden Dorteville. His name was a burst of light and shade in his own language, a vision that meant familiarity and home and me. He was one of the bright ones, a legion of youngsters charged with scattering themselves across the alien solar system. Their mission? To integrate themselves into the society that called itself humanity. There were four of them in each pod, hurtling through the galaxy, away from the true suns, away from the light and heat and anything they had ever known. He... Was he even a he at this point? Had no words for this loss, for the fear that swept over them all as they were shot like bullets into a solar system that felt cold and grey compared to their own world. Why not call it death? He would never be bright and warm again. The planet was cold and pale, too far from the sun which was itself a weak ball of yellow light, hardly worth bothering about. Two pod siblings were dead, shaken badly on impact. A third crawled ahead of him, out of the pod and into the wan sunshine. She stood, already forming her flexible scarlet limbs into the body she had learned to make in basic training. He watched as she gave herself two arms, two legs... She grew hair from her scalp and nails from her fingertips. She stretched her waist thin and her hips wide, made globular breasts too round to be realistic. Clothes, she said hoarsely, don't have enough energy to stay warm without clothes. Something had gone wrong with her heat source. She was already turning bluish and pale, simply from the contact between her misshapen feet and the fierce white ice-crust of the ground. Winter, he realised. They had landed on the winter side of the planet. That was not in their mission parameters. It would count as a failing grade. He could feel his own heat within his core. It kept his muscles relaxed and protected, even as he shaped his own body into the design he had worked on for so long. Male now, a sleek practical silhouette with the appropriate musculature. Toes, he had worked hard on his toes, ensuring a deliberate inconsistency between them. To be too perfect was to stand out, and their mission was to integrate, to collect data, to survive. His pod sibling moaned as her skin chilled quickly. Her energy flickered. He stepped forward, pressing his chest to her back so that she would think she could warm herself on his heat. As he drained her of the remainder of her light energy, she screamed. There was no one on this ice-crusted land to hear her. 
he burned with triumph, with the heat that meant survival. The pod disintegrated, as was always intended, leaving a small beacon behind dug deep into the ice. As he walked across the ground, towards the flecks of heat and light in the distance that meant some kind of civilization, his feet steamed where they touched the snow. The second time he died, he was the Honourable Auden Dorteville, husband to the young Comte de la Fere. He had spent two years befriending Olivier with his wit and sarcasm and beauty before pouring everything he knew about humanity into a dazzling seduction. From lovers to husbands, it took only a few months for Olivier to fall so completely that he stood up to his remaining family members and asserted his privilege to marry whoever he damn well wanted. They were happy in their marriage, or as near to happiness as Auden had ever imagined. Each year he made a discreet pilgrimage back to the snowy wastes of far north Castellian to pour all that he had learned about these people into the blinking, impersonal beacon. The war between his own people and the human solar system was over, but the work of spies continued. There would be another war, and he was one of the weapons they were saving for the future. Every year it became harder to slide out of the warm bed and the man who loved him, to make that solitary trek, and to betray the planet that had become his home. He was never warm on valour, and yet he no longer saw it in bleak shades of grey and white. There was colour if you looked hard enough. The beacon, his people, knew too much now. They knew about Olivia and Lafayre. The only way Alden could escape would be to destroy that life entirely. All the connections he had made and shared to destroy his husband and start again as a different person. Auden gazed thoughtfully at the beacon, uploaded his report and returned home to the estate, to love, to Olivier, to warmth. The following year, he stayed home. He left it a day and then another, telling himself he would go tomorrow, that he had not truly made up his mind to turn rogue. The beacon made up his mind for him. At the beginning of the third day that the Honourable Auden Dorteville failed to make his annual report, his skin began to burn. The heat was pleasant at first, <laughs> familiar warmth that filled him with light and urgent energy, but the heat did not disperse. It poured over him in waves, sending him shivering one moment and sweating with heat the next. It appeared as an illness to the humans. He fell into a rambling fever, his whole body swamped with pain and heat and punishment. By the time he'd recovered anything like his usual sensibilities, he was too late. He found himself weighed down with heavy chains and cuffs, under sentence of execution by his own husband, who had finally terribly discovered his secret. Here is what he could have done. One, twisted his hands and feet thinner 
to easily escape the cuffs. Two, murdered the guards watching over him. Three, made a new body and started again on the far side of the continent or elsewhere on the planet. Instead, Auden placed his trust in the love he had built with Olivier. He believed right up until the last minute that his husband was incapable of striking the killing blow. Humans knew so little about the sun-kissed, even after fighting a war against them. The one thing they all believed was that the only way to kill a sun-kissed was to sever his head from his body. It was an extremely useful myth. There were millions of ways for his kind to die on their own world, but Auden had seen for himself that the only way the sun-kissed could die on valour was if they took damage while their bodies were cold. Olivia Armand d'Otteville, the Comte de la Faire, executed his husband on a beautiful sunny afternoon on the village green of Foyle on his family estate. In attendance were a planetary marshal, a servant of the elements, and several members of local government as well as local villagers. Auden's body was ritually burned in the elemental fashion, in two separate locations. Ten minutes later, his body reassembled itself in a bright beam of burning light beside the beacon in the snow. He gave his report methodically, taking in all relevant data gathered in the last year and providing particular account of the human response to his unveiling as an alien spy. He brimmed with power and unspilled energy glowing in his own skin after the, what should he call it, restoration, extraction, rebirth. As soon as the report had been uploaded into the sky, Auden, not Auden anymore, summoned every motive energy he had and blasted the beacon into dust. Now he was truly alone. The body he shaped for himself next should have been completely different. It was a dangerous luxury to keep any feature that resembled Auden Dorteville. But that face, those limbs, those feet. He'd designed them personally. They felt more like himself than his original bright red body of flexible, mutable limbs. He liked his cheekbones. He could rule the world with cheekbones like these. In the end, he shaped his body into a man who could well have been Auden's more stable older brother. He let his hair grow brown rather than silver, widened his nose, added wear and tear to the face, width to the shoulders and rib cage. He travelled south, far south, because there was no need to linger near that damned beacon any longer. He went from city to city, acquiring clothes and funds and political gossip, building a platform from which to launch Vaniel Stonewater. Milord was an excellent spy, above all things. He built up different faces and bodies, variations on a theme. He became the Raven Slate and the bureaucrat Linton Grey, as well as Vaniel. They all had different faces, but the same excellent cheekbones.
Auden and Olivia had adored political theory, but their world had been small, confined to their university and then to Olivia's rural estate. Here in the South, cities ate and drank new aristocrat politics. Vaniel Stonewater found a game that he could win all the time without growing bored. The rules were always changing. One night, in a salon filled with beautiful people looking for sex and attachment, as much as intellectual stimulation, Vaniel Stonewater met a quiet young woman with laughter in her eyes, whose elder sister was desperate to marry her off, so she could start making babies for the family line. Milady Delia de Winter, she told him when he asked for an introduction. Winter, Vaniel said, with an inscrutable smile. What an evocative name. You don't think it makes me sound chilly, she ventured, flirting a little. Quite the opposite, sweetness. Quite the opposite. Marrying Olivier had been his greatest mistake. Marrying Delia was precisely the opposite. As Milord de Winter, he finally became his truest self. Such a shame that Delia had to die for him to truly profit from the marriage. Now, in the tower on the island at the end of the world, it was Vaniel de Winter's turn to die. B had ruthlessly guarded his safety when he was part of her family. Now that she saw him as her enemy, she would not hesitate to end him. It was only a surprise she had not done it already. But she had orders, or a request at least, from someone with the authority to stay her hand. It was too much to hope that Her Eminence, the Cardinal, might ride to his rescue. Theirs had been a partnership of convenience, and Milord was well aware that he had ceased to be convenient. Still, the death of the Duchess of Buckingham would go some way towards repairing their professional relationship. He had a professional reputation to uphold. Committing a murder remotely while locked in a tower... Far from the victim, oh yes, that would remind people of what Milord de Winter was capable. Even if he would not be de Winter after tonight. Marshal Felton came to him at midnight, when everyone else in this wretched tower was asleep. Milord sat with his feet up on the window seat, as the chime of the security system indicated that someone was punching in a code. He had already taken a dose of vision, a clever psychic drug, once used by air commanders to see into the minds of their pilots during battle. Combined with the winter implant, it made for a whole different kind of weapon. When he closed his eyes, Milord saw through the eyes of winter, a barefoot, silver-haired creature. Winter was a flirt, a dangerous weapon and a spy. All of Milord's selves were spies, of course, but Winter was the wickedest of them. He had built Winter himself, based on a set of programmable micro-studs he bought on the black market from Mendaki traders. He was pretty sure they used them as some kind of long-distance interstellar sex toy. The micro-studs looked like grains of pepper and could be added to any food or drink. 
Once lodged inside the victim's skin, they implanted the program directly into their brain. Milord had no control of Winter once the program was activated. It played out its own games of mockery and subversion. The winter he had dosed the Duchess of Buckingham with months ago was a law unto itself. It had certainly performed the necessary tasks, pushing her towards the adultery she already desperately wanted to commit, nudging her to keep the coat that the Prince Consort had been foolish enough to wrap around her shoulders. The true value of winter was in the information it provided. Milord could check in with the implant, with everything it had seen and done in the presence of the Duchess of Buckingham, through his use of vision. Tonight he learned that Buck had a house guest, a young man who had thwarted Milord more than once, and had an intimate connection to Dana d'Artagnan. Killing Buck was a matter of duty. Killing Conrad Sue would be a delicious treat, something to look forward to when duty was done. Milord relaxed, wriggling his bare feet against the cool stone of the tower wall. Felton stepped into the tower. Milord, she said in a low whisper. He had her now. He had manipulated her to make her move against the Countess of Clarick. That was an excellent start. If Milord was to use Felton, really use her, then she must want to be used. Did you come here to pray? He asked now, stretching out along the ledge. I don't know what I'm doing here, said Felton, her voice trembling. It's all right, said my lord, it's not your fault. You've been caught up in a conspiracy not of your making. You're on the wrong side, but you don't have to be. I don't believe you. I don't trust you, said Felton. Milord exulted. He had cracked her open, using only words and ideas. It was the best kind of seduction. Here, he said, crossing the tower floor, his warm soles stinging with the cold of the flagstones. Share my wine, and we'll talk. I will answer any question you have about the crimes my sister-in-law has committed against valour justice all in the name of friendship with those musketeers. He could not resist a sneer at musketeers, and he saw that Felton subconsciously mimicked him. Of course, she had an ingrained dislike and distrust of the Regent's own. She'd been one of the Red Hammers on Paris Satellite not so long ago. Felton wet her mouth with the wine and licked her lips though it was more of a nervous habit than any particular thirst. Not enough. She must drink deeper. Milord continued. It is Buckingham behind it, of course. Buckingham and her ambitions for this planet. This planet, said Felton, taking another swallow of wine. There was something about the twist of her mouth as she repeated the words. The best tool for a seduction was knowledge. What is it you most want, Marshal Felton? What is it that you need? Want? Need? said Felton, waving the wine glass as if it offended her. My whole life collapsed because of want and need. I lost Paris because of want and need. I won't make that mistake again. Oh, breathed my lord. 
He took the glass from her and pretended to sip, then passed it back to watch her take a longer swallow. It is Paris you want to return there. That was enough to break the dam. I hate this planet with its new aristocrats and its politics and its rain and elementals everywhere, confessed Felton. I was happy as a red hammer, happy on Paris satellite. What happened? Who took it away from you? I fell in love with a musketeer, she said, with a woman who did not care enough for me. I broke the fidelity clause of my marriage contract for three nights in the arms of the musketeer Aramis. When we were caught out, she moved on to another affair while I was ruined. Everyone on Paris is an oath-breaker one way or another, but no one can afford to be caught, especially those who work in service to the church. I see, said Milord, watching the long milky throat of Felton work around the wine that remained in the glass. He could not be sure yet if the implant had taken hold. What do you want most? Revenge or Paris? Both. I want both. Even if the Cardinal forgave me my sins, I can't return to Paris while she's there. There it was, swimming with the heightened senses provided by vision. Milord gasped as a wave of heat roiled around the tower room, and the illusion of his younger, charming, silver-haired self flickered into existence between them. Felton staggered back, seeing double. She swayed as the implant took hold and her eyes focused on a single figure, on the image of winter. Milord captured the glass and set it aside. Felton barely even glanced in his direction. Winter moved towards her, his hips swaying and his smile blazing with heat. We're going to do such marvellous work together, Jan, he promised her. We're going to kill a traitor. And when the Duchess of Buckingham is in the ground, I promise you, the church will welcome you back with open arms. Aramis will never return to Paris Satellite alive. Milord, meanwhile, would reshape himself anew into someone that none of the damned musketeers would ever suspect. All he had to do to beat them was to die one more time. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawa land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates, follow me on Twitter at TansyRR, and if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week. 